Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. More than 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece, the philosopher and polymath Aristotle observed that many of the people around him were often squinting and blinking very frequently. Some people, he realised, were able to see faraway objects better than others. As for why, he thought that people with eyes located deep inside their heads could see further than those whose eyes stuck out. There's a bony ridge located above the eye socket, and when someone's eyeballs weren't protected by these bony ridges, they would struggle to focus on objects further away. Or at least that's what Aristotle thought. He postulated further that people might be able to improve their ability to see distant objects by looking through a hollow pipe. Now, this was all around 350 BC. The understanding of the eye has thankfully improved a lot since then. Some ancient Greek legacies have lived on, however. Take short-sightedness, the condition in which someone can't see objects far away clearly. It's known technically as myopia. People who live with the condition are known as myopes. That's almost the same as the term coined by Aristotle all those years ago, which combined mien, meaning to be closed, and ops, meaning the eye or face, to make myops. Aristotle's trick with the hollow pipe might have yielded some improvements for the myopes of his day, but people today are probably better advised to use glasses or contact lenses to improve their sight. Although myopia can be managed in this way, scientists have never really figured out a way to reverse the condition. Today, the rates of short-sightedness around the world are higher than ever before. The problem is biggest in East Asia. In South Korea's capital, Seoul, one study found that 97% of boys leaving high school were short-sighted. Experts say myopia has reached epidemic proportions and that the public health impacts of it are deeper than first meets the eye. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. Today, we're investigating the causes of short-sightedness, how it's become such a problem and why it's getting worse around the world. We'll explore whether this decline in eyesight can be slowed down or even prevented. And is there any way to reduce the impact of the myopia epidemic on public health?
Myopia is the technical term for what most people call short-sightedness, which is when you can see things all right up close, so you can read books or you know read a computer screen or something like that, but you struggle to focus on things that are further away. Tim Cross is The Economist's technology editor. You might remember this from school, but essentially the eye works by focusing incoming light fairly precisely onto a layer of cells at the back, which is called the retina. And it's those cells that actually sense the photons. They sense the colour and the shapes and all the rest and, and kind of do the seeing for you. And there's a whole sort of set of machinery, your, your cornea and then a lens, which can be sort of stretched or compressed by muscles that's responsible for, for doing that focusing. And in people who are short-sighted, the focus is in the wrong place. So rather than being focused precisely on the retina, it's focused just short of it. And the result is that you get a blurred image. And if anyone's out there is a keen photographer or an old person like me, they'll remember the old style manual cameras where you could fiddle with the lens itself to put the camera in or out of focus. And if you're short-sighted, the lens has been misadjusted and you've got a blurry image at certain distances. And generally speaking, what's different about a short-sighted eye that uh, makes it not focus properly? So the most common one for our purposes is that the eyeball is the wrong shape. So if the eyeball is too long, then the rest of the eye can be working sort of quotes properly, but the focal point will still be not on the retina because the retina, if you like, is further back than it should be. So the problem is that the light isn't being focused in the right place. So you add glasses or contact lenses, which sort of modify the way the light comes into the eye so that when it does go through your cornea and your natural lens, it ends up focused back on the retina where it should be and not just short of it where it's not as useful. What sort of age does this happen at people? Well, it mostly arises in childhood. So maybe from six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, something like that. And once it starts, it tends to get worse until you reach early adulthood. So say very late teens or early 20s, at which point it kind of stabilizes. So I'm short-sighted. My prescription hasn't changed since I was in my very early 20s. And I think that's pretty typical. So short-sightedness isn't reversible, but it's clearly manageable, right? That's right. So once you've got it, you've got it for life. So I'll always be short-sighted. But like most people who are short-sighted, I wear glasses or contact lenses to manage it, which if you're lucky enough to live in a developed country, that's an annoyance. You know, the glasses aren't cheap. You have to replace them every few years. The same with the contact lenses, particularly if your prescription's changing. It's annoying, but it's manageable. If you aren't so lucky and you don't live in quite such a rich country, then it can become a bigger problem. So one of the problems in some rural Chinese schools, for instance, is that some of the kids are short-sighted, but actually struggle to get hold of the corrective lenses that would let them see the blackboard properly. And at that point, your education can suffer. And so just in terms of the mechanics of this, how do you measure how short-sighted somebody is? What, is there a scale? There is a scale. So you measure it with something called diopters. And it's one of these things that can be positive or negative. So if it's negative, you've got short sight. If it's positive, you've got long sightedness, which is the kind of problem that you tend to see as you get older, where you struggle to read things up close, even though your distance vision is fine. And each diopter means you need a stronger lens in your glasses or a, a more powerful contact lens to give you properly focused vision. And when it comes to myopia, these are negative numbers. So you can be in minus one diopter, minus two, minus three. And then by convention, there's a, a sort of cutoff at minus six diopters, where if you're more myopic than that, you're classed as severely myopic. 
Now, having to rely on glasses and contact lenses to fix this, in one sense, is at least it's possible to do that. But as you say, it is annoying and difficult for people in developing countries and other places where there, there maybe aren't the resources to do this. But does that really constitute a public health issue, as, as you've been writing? I think maybe it didn't a few years ago, but it's starting to now. And the reason for that is that myopia is not just an annoyance. And later on in life, in sort of middle age or, or onwards, it does raise the risk of, of other complications, which can really affect your vision and in the worst cases can, can make you blind. So um, because the eyeball is misshapen, you're at a higher risk of the retina, which is the light sensing layer that actually does the seeing, becoming detached, for instance, um, and that risk goes up the, the more myopic you are. It can raise the risk of damage to the optic nerve, again, because the eye is sort of misshapen and just the, the sort of mechanical forces that are placed on the nerve as it penetrates into the back of the eye are higher. And again, that gets worse, the worse your myopia is. And there's another condition called myopic maculopathy, where the retina sort of stretches over time, degenerates. And again, that's sort of irreversible and can cause vision loss or blindness. And so when myopia was relatively rare and most people who had it weren't very myopic, these were kind of quite unusual diagnoses, I suppose, or they, they weren't that common. So they were obviously a big problem for anyone who did have them, but not that many people did. What's changed is that the rates of myopia have risen sharply in the last 30, 40, 50 years, and with them, the rates of severe myopia as well. So there are more people out there at higher risk for these problems than there used to be. Well, can you give me some numbers on that? How bad is it around the world? It depends where you look. So the best numbers we have actually are from East Asia, where as far as we can tell, the situation is worse. And that's why the numbers are good, because doctors and governments have really started looking into this. But for instance, as far back as 1983, there was a survey, an island-wide survey done in Taiwan, which concluded that about 70% of school leavers, so people who graduated the Taiwanese equivalent of high school, were myopic. Um, if you look at places like Seoul in South Korea, one recent survey put the number at more than nine in 10. And places like Hong Kong and Singapore, you know, they aren't far behind. It's possibly somewhere in the high 80s. And in China, of course, which by itself is a fifth of the world's population, the rates of myopia among school leavers have gone from maybe 20 to 30% in the 1960s, although it's hard to be certain exactly how high they were, to again, about 80% these days. So it's not just sort of that more people are short-sighted than aren't, it's that almost all of these young cohorts are leaving school short-sighted. How about the rest of the world? Um, what's the situation in, say, Europe and America and other places? Well, again, the, the data, funnily enough, isn't quite as good there as it is in East Asia because it hasn't been seen as such a problem. But I think, you know, it's safe to say it's not as bad. Uh, there was one study that looked at other studies that had been done in several European countries and concluded there that the rate, depending on the country, was somewhere between 20 and 40%. But again, that number seems to have risen over time more slowly than it has in East Asia, but still going up. And it's important to note that as far as we can tell, this is much, much higher than what you might expect the sort of, quote, natural background rate of myopia to be, maybe 10 times or even more higher than the amount of short-sightedness that you would get in a sort of state of nature, as it were. And one person who really knows these numbers well and who's been looking at this question for many, many years is a professor, or now in fact a retired professor, at the Australian National University called Ian Morgan. So I asked him, when was it that researchers first started to realise that this was a growing problem? And also, what are the sort of historical theories and what do we now think about what exactly causes it? Well, the first signs were becoming apparent in the uh, 1970s. 
it was very clear that more children were becoming myopic, more children were uh, needing glasses, and this was creating problems in two areas. The area of labour supply as the East Asian economies uh, industrialised, and it also created some concerns in military circles because all these soldiers were going to be wearing glasses. So that was the very first sign that alerted people that something unusual and unexpected was going on. And this was a bit of a challenge, wasn't it, to the existing theories which held that myopia was mostly genetic? Well, that's right. If you go back 400 years, there was certainly a lot of suggestion that the small number of myopes were being created by too much study. Uh, But particularly in the uh, 1960s, the emphasis switched very strongly towards a belief that myopia was, to quote one of the authorities, totally genetically determined. And the only question that remained was if there was any role at all for environmental factors. And there were hints, I think, even in the 60s, there was a study done in Alaska which suggested that genetics certainly couldn't be the whole story. Well, that's right. What happened was that in the uh, 1950s and 60s, the very remote Inuit communities in Alaska and northern Canada were finally being taken into settlements and starting to get education. And all of a sudden, they had this epidemic of myopia that appeared. It was localised to those areas. If you go a little bit further south, it wasn't nearly as dramatic. The education that the kids were receiving in those areas was pretty rudimentary. But the studies on the Inuit, which could have been really important, uh, were largely dismissed as being impossible. But the weight of the evidence became so strong that people had to accept the argument that if there was rapid change, then this meant it couldn't be tightly genetically determined and environmental factors had to have a big role. But that took 20 to 30 years before it was finally accepted. And presumably those those environmental factors, education, no one thought that sort of the direct process of, you know, learning maths and practising spelling and stuff makes you short-sighted. Well, in the end, myopia is just an eye that's grown too big. And that's where near work comes in, the belief that in some way, you know, one of the characteristics of education is that you do a lot of reading and writing. You need to focus a lot. And in some way, that drives the eye to become longer. And how does that theory stand up these days? What's the consensus now on, on you know, the, the contribution of near work to, to the problem? Look, I think most people would accept is strong support to the link to education. You have to find a mechanism. Australia is a highly educated country, and yet we have very little myopia. And our working hypothesis was that it probably had something to do with the fact that we traditionally have an outdoors-oriented lifestyle. So for the first time, we asked a lot of detailed questions in order to try and explain why we had so little myopia, and we discovered the protective effect of spending time outdoors. And this idea of about time outdoors and, and, and daylight and so on, that's had some support from animal experiments as well. Yes, yeah, so 
several groups have now taken animals, made them myopic by standard experimental paradigms under normal animal laboratory conditions of about 300 lux, 500 lux, and they become myopic. If you increase that to uh, 10,000 lux plus, the animals don't become myopic. So brighter light clearly prevents myopia developing. And do we have an idea of how exactly it does that on a, on a sort of biochemical level? Well, bright light induces the release of a transmitter from the retina, dopamine. And it's known, once again, from animal experimental studies that um, dopamine blocks the elongation of the eye, which is the cause of myopia. So when the animal's in brighter light, even though it's being stimulated for the eye to grow, you're releasing more dopamine and it's blocking the process occurring. We even have a little bit of direct evidence on humans because there's one study that has looked at uh, kids with ADHD who are being treated with a drug that activates the dopaminergic system and they don't actually elongate as fast as control group who is not being treated with the drug. I suspect a lot of the, the parents listening to this are going to wonder, well, how, how much light is that? You know, how bright do things need to be? I can tell you in the Australian situation, on a good summer day, we don't have 10,000 lux, we have 200,000 lux. 10,000 lux is the light intensity on a sunny winter day in, in Canberra. Uh, we would have reached at about uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. They go up to about 35,000 lux quite easily. These are not bright lights. They're the kinds of exposures that humans would get in normal environments. And how do they compare to the sort of light levels you might see indoors then? Indoors, it's very much less bright. You're talking a bit brighter than the... Uh, animal laboratory of 300 to 500 lux but 500 up towards a thousand lux is quite common indoors. Do we know when in childhood is, is sort of most important? Does it need to happen earlier or later or all the way through childhood? Do we have any, any ideas on how that works? In a typical situation if we compare six-year-old children in Sydney and six-year-old children in China we can hardly see any difference in the prevalence of myopia they seem to settle in a, what we call a mildly hyperopic range uh, in the units about plus one diopter. So long-sighted rather than short-sighted. The big action seems to take place when kids start school and probably two things happen in parallel. One, they get put under educational pressure, maybe near work, hyperopic defocus pressures, so there's a drive to become myopic. At the same time, a lot of their time is now occupied inside classrooms, indoors. And so they don't get the bright light exposures that they may get as younger children. So you're not only increasing the push, but you're taking the break off. And so you can see in China, typically you start with one to two percent of kids myopic when they start school 
by grade four, 50% of them are myopic. Now you can compare that to the situation in Australia and it'd be very similar in the UK and North America. There may be 10% myopia in the more Western environments. And that's probably a combination of the intense study pressures that start very early in East Asian education systems and a greater deprivation of time outdoors, which may in part be associated with schooling, but there's also a cultural factor that in East Asia, in general, pale skins have been preferred, particularly in girls, uh, probably because the typical peasant, the fate that you wanted to avoid, was very suntanned indeed. Thanks for that, Tim. It's really interesting to hear about all the different theories for what's been causing this epidemic. And one thing that people might be thinking is that, you know, nowadays kids, uh, everyone is spending much more time in front of screens uh, doing homework or work or whatever else. So is that a factor in people's short-sightedness? It doesn't seem to be because the timing doesn't really line up. So as we said, we saw myopia rates starting to rise in places like Taiwan in you know the 60s and 70s. And that was far before anyone had a smartphone or a Kindle or a tablet or anything like that. Um, I think to the extent that smartphones and games consoles and stuff mean that people spend more time indoors, then there might be a sort of indirect effect that way. But I don't think the evidence really supports the idea that screens in particular are especially bad for you. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, that's not what I expected to hear, but thank you, Tim. Now, coming up, we'll dive into myopia in further detail and ask how to prevent it from developing in the first place. First, though, in the weekly edition of The Economist, you can get full access to Tim's reporting on myopia and much, much more besides. In the current edition, for example, I really enjoyed reading about how technology that's normally used by spies is now being used to detect moths. And if there are any listeners out there who aren't already sick to death of reading about uh, epidemics and pandemics between myopia and COVID, there's also a very interesting piece about the origins of the Black Death. The Black Death. Tim, didn't we already know the origin of the Black Death? I mean, it's been a very long time. Apparently, it started in Central Asia sometime around 1338, so we can pinpoint it pretty precisely. Okay, that does sound fascinating. Now, if you're not yet a subscriber, you can head to economist.com slash podcast offer to get the best introductory deal. And I know what you're thinking. Reading the paper is just going to be adding to your burden of close work. Well, luckily, you can also listen to The Economist's edition in audio while you're out and about getting your daily dose of sunshine. However, that's only for subscribers. So that you don't forget, there's a handy link to subscribe in the show notes. Thanks, Tim. We'll be back with you shortly to explore what to do to tackle the myopia epidemic. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. 
Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Every day, children in most Chinese schools do something they call eye exercises. In this particular routine, the children take their index fingers and gently rub circles on their faces, above their cheeks and below their eyes. These exercises are said to have their roots in Chinese massage and traditional medicine. The idea is to reduce the tension in the eye's muscles, which, officials claim, protects the student's vision and may prevent short-sightedness from developing. It's perhaps not surprising that the Chinese government has endorsed such practices since the 1960s. After all, it's thought that more than 80% of the country's children currently in school will graduate high school with myopia. Whether or not these daily eye exercises will change any of that is another story. What is clear is that China is taking short-sightedness seriously. In 2018, Xi Jinping, the country's president, declared that tackling myopia is a national priority. In a statement to school children earlier this year, he claimed that myopia was driven by a lack of exercise. He told children to sharpen up their minds and toughen up their bodies. Recently, China's government appears to have made some changes to school life. Experts have recommended against giving written homework for the first two years of elementary school. They've discouraged after-school tutoring. And they've also been asking schools to increase the time children spend outdoors during the school day to around two hours. Not only that, a crackdown on the country's video games industry in 2021 is said to have been partly motivated by worries about eyesight. It's encouraging that public health officials are waking up to the myopia epidemic. But in China, as in much of East Asia, there's a long way to go. I'm now joined once again by Tim Cross, The Economist technology editor, to discuss the short-sightedness epidemic and what we might be able to do about it. Tim, let's start with a question of prevention. We've explored the link between a lack of daylight and the onset of myopia. Can that knowledge be used in any way to stop myopia? That's certainly the hope that they can use it to both prevent large numbers of cases and also to make it less severe in those people who do get it. Because, of course, myopia is progressive. The earlier it starts, the longer your eye has to, to sort of grow improperly and the worse your vision ends up by the time it, it sort of finally stabilizes. And again, most of this work is being done in East Asia, but there are researchers investigating you know, how much daylight is necessary in order to slow or perhaps even stop the, 
the epidemic entirely. We've heard the ways in which China is trying to prevent the development of myopia in school children. But what about other parts of East Asia? Are there efforts elsewhere to encourage kids to spend more time outdoors? So this is where a lot of the efforts have been focused. So Taiwan, for example, has run quite a big study looking at exactly this. And there's been another study done in Singapore. And there was, there was an interesting wrinkle there because the study in Taiwan they made it the school's job to basically kick the kids out for a certain amount of time every day. There's a policy called Tian Tian Outdoor 120, which basically means that kids should aim to spend 120 minutes, so two hours, outdoors in the sunlight during the course of the school day. In Singapore, it was much more left to just sort of appealing to the parents and saying to them, you know, make sure you give your kid enough time outside. And at the end of the trial in Singapore, the kids were spending basically no more time outside than they had been at the start because the parents seemed to prioritise education more. One of the researchers who's helped to drive these programmes and has studied the results quite closely is Catherine Rose, who's the head of orthoptics at the University of Technology in Sydney. I spoke to her about how the trials worked and what they found. We found on average, if a child spends something like 15 hours a week outdoors, they were protected from developing myopia at an early age. And this actually has since been confirmed in a number of other studies. And after that policy was implemented in Taiwan, they actually started to see rates of myopia falling again, slowly but fairly steadily, from 49.4% in 2012 to 46.1% in 2015. Now, that's not the sort of biggest change, but on the other hand, it is the first time in many, many decades that the line on the graph has you know, flipped and instead of rising, has started falling. So exposing children to more daylight sounds like it might have some sort of preventative effect on developing myopia. Th- that's good for kids growing up now, but I wonder, for those who've already started to develop it, I mean, isn't the damage already done? Yes. Yeah, so by the time you get to young adulthood, at that point, yeah, the damage certainly is done. And in fact, that's one of the questions that I put directly to Professor Rose. We've got young adults who are in their 20s and who are now moving into their 30s and 40s who unfortunately have high myopia. And there is treatment for things like retinal detachment, certainly cataract and glaucoma. But myopic maculopathy, to date, there is really not any kind of intervention or treatment for that condition. And I am concerned about the generation now who are in their 30s and 40s as they move in the next decade into their 50s and 60s how much visual impairment we will start to see amongst those populations. For those children and adolescents who are starting to become myopic now, Tim, is there any way that doctors and others can intervene to sort of slow down the progression of the myopia? Yeah, so this is the other part to the puzzle, I guess. You know, are there any other treatments we have besides sunlight? And yes, it seems like there might be. So one quite easy to use one is a chemical called atropine, which is actually a poisonous chemical found in belladonna. And in fact, it was used in Europe a couple of hundred years ago. People would put, you know, very small concentrations of this stuff into their eyes, women mostly, to make their pupils look bigger. And that was thought to be attractive. Weirdly, it turns out that, that giving people low doses of atropine does seem to work to slow down the progression of myopia once it starts, even though we don't know exactly how. And that was another thing that I asked Dr. Rose about. In the initial sort of looks at um, atropine, they were using 1% atropine, which has quite a number of side effects, such as blurry vision and also photophobia, that is uh, unable to handle light. So 
It wasn't really until studies in Singapore which used uh, lower-dose atropine and found that the lowest dose that they used, which was 0.01% atropine, was in fact in the long term the most beneficial in reducing myopia progression. So that really then started a look at low-dose atropine. Since then, we've had the studies called LAMP studies from Hong Kong where they've looked at lower dose but in varying amounts. And basically, over a number of years, they've found that the 0.05% atropine was more effective than the 0.01%. And um, it led to about a 67% reduction in myopia progression compared to the control group. So it was deemed very efficacious. Let's bring in some technology into this. And aren't there more advanced ways to do interventions than, than what we've heard so far? Yes, there are. So the, there are a couple actually that are sort of quite promising and, and being used already. One of them that, that some listeners might have heard of is called orthokeratology or ortho-K contact lenses. And these are contact lenses that are designed to be worn at night rather than during the day. So the, the opposite way to which you normally use contact lenses, you wear them while you're asleep. And the idea is that the lenses themselves physically sort of flatten and reshape the cornea, which is the transparent sort of blob at the front of the eye and in front of your pupil. And again, that seems to slow the progression of, of the disease. Orthokeratology actually puts pressure on the cornea. If you have ever rested your eye closed on your hand for some period of time and then sort of taken your hand away, you'll often notice that your vision is a bit distorted and then it recovers quite quickly. Well, it's using that similar kind of principle. What has been found is that orthokeratology does have some effect in reducing the rate of myopia progression. So its efficacy is about 40 to 50%, so it's not really as good as the atropine. It also has some disadvantages, and This basically is likely to be due to the fact that you're increasing overnight hypoxia of the cornea. The cornea is a little bit hypoxic at night for everybody because you're sleeping with your eyelids closed and a lot of the oxygen that goes into your cornea actually comes from the atmosphere. Adding a contact lens, you are making the eye relatively more hypoxic than it would be under normal conditions. And this seems to partially underlie the higher risk of developing infections and corneal ulceration that does occur with orthokeratology. The cornea can be so severely damaged that um, it is scarred and the child then loses vision in that eye. So It would not be my recommendation, but it is very widely used, particularly, again, in East Asia. So, I mean, it sounds to me like we've gone a long way around to saying that basically glasses or specs might be the the, the best way to deal with this, perhaps, because they're simple to use and, and you don't have to worry so much about how they're administered. Yes, and there are several kinds of, of new sort of fancy glasses, basically, that are designed to do this. Um, various sort of brand names. There's one called Dims, for example, that people might have heard of, another one called Stellist. And the way that these basically work is they have the sort of central part of the glasses are designed to correct your vision in the normal way, in the same way that an ordinary pair of glasses would. And then around that is a sort of ring 
of tiny, tiny regions, like just sort of, you know, millimeters across, if, if even that big, lots and lots and lots of them, which are deliberately designed to defocus the light that comes in. So the eye doesn't receive a completely blurred signal, but it does receive a sort of partially blurred one, as it were, as people look around and so on. And again, we're not entirely sure of the mechanism, but there've been some trials of these things done, mostly in East Asia. There was one trial in Hong Kong, for example, of DIMS lenses, which seemed to slow the rate of progression by, you know, 60, 70, maybe even even sort of 80 percent. And of course, you know, this is just one trial. Um, one swallow doesn't make a summer and all that. But it does look pretty promising because if you could give kids glasses that A, let them see properly, but B, also slow down the progression so their myopia doesn't get too much worse, that would obviously be quite a big breakthrough. I mean, the context of this story, of course, is that myopia is truly widespread and on the rise. And it sounds like it could be avoidable. Well, it certainly would look like that. I mean, if we've got both a sort of powerful and relatively straightforward way to prevent this by just kicking young children outside a bit more than they, they sort of currently are. And then at the same time, we've got some promising technologies for slowing down progression in those kids who do nonetheless go on to develop myopia. That seems like a pretty potent combination to me. Um, but I asked an actual expert, I asked Dr. Rose about this, and she was also quite positive. I certainly think the myopia epidemic is preventable. And I think it requires a certain amount of will on the part of governments and education departments to change some of the intensive schooling policies that have actually developed over recent decades. So for the prevention of high myopia, I have real hope for the public interventions that are being done in places like Taiwan and China. But they're also facing that if something like 80% of their population became myopic, the health costs associated with that, let alone with high myopia and potential irreversible blindness, that's you know really a massive cost, which an intervention that says children should spend more time outside, which has other health benefits, such as preventing obesity and diabetes, I, I think it's a bit of a, a no-brainer, if you like. Tim, is there enough energy from authorities and governments and people like that to actually start to tackle this, uh, this epidemic of myopia? I think that's definitely sort of the next stage, and it kind of remains to be seen. I think there's widespread agreement now, particularly in, in East Asia, where things are worse, that this is a problem. I think having some encouraging results from places like Taiwan is going to help because, of course, if you bring politicians a problem, what they really want is a solution. And, you know, there does seem to be at least the sort of outline of one now. I think the trick will be overcoming the, the, the sort of reluctance, per persuading parents and people at large that this is a trade-off worth making. Because, of course, all these problems we've talked about leading to vision loss in later life, for now, that's just a sort of theoretical worry that's sort of in the far future for any parent with young children. It'll also be interesting to see if this idea of myopia prevention kind of spreads beyond East Asia, because it's a problem in the West, but it's not as big of a problem as it is in the Far East. Okay, I guess the main takeaway from this entire conversation is that short-sightedness is far less trivial than we might have casually thought before. So uh, Tim, thanks very much for explaining all that to me. And uh, thanks for joining me on the show. Yeah, I think, you know, much as it pains me to admit it, my mother and probably your mother and probably all of our mothers were right. And, you know, there is something to be said for spending more time outside when you're young. <laughs> it's true. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Alec. Our thanks also to Ian Morgan and Catherine Rose. And thank you for listening to Babbage. 
To hear more from The Economist's science and tech team, subscribe to our weekly newsletter. It's called Simply Science. Every Wednesday, you'll get the latest groundbreaking developments delivered straight to your inbox. You'll also hear about the beautiful, sometimes strange little quirks that our correspondents come across in their reporting. And there's even an occasional gif that I guarantee you'll enjoy. Head to economist.com slash newsletters to find out more. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.